Aren't you glad God's unchangeable when we change, unshakable when we kind of get shaken at the core, unstoppable? You know, we, we stop a little bit. Boys and girls, y'all going to be in here today because today's passage I want you to hear because this is something you're going to really understand. I think we may have some packets back there if some of you want to be able to kind of draw and do some stuff like that. But next week we'll go ahead and start going back downstairs. Today we're going to be looking at something from James chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Now you will remember as we started this study on the book of James that James was written to the Jewish believers who were scattered abroad. So they had some Jewish background, but they, they, were, they were changing from being just Jewish people to <clears throat> being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you go to the next slide there, Father Brendan? All right, here we go. So you can kind of stay on there, and I can stay on track with what we're doing. All right, he wants the believers, he wants all of them to know that, hey, life's hard. That song's right. In good times and bad, we experience that. Life's got its challenges, but um, you know, life's hard. Temptation's real, we found in chapter 1. And then last week, Todd talked about this, and I, he didn't do it exactly like this, but this is what we could sum up. He said, you don't just talk about following Jesus. You got to do it. Like, you got to, you got to, it's got to be real. You know what I mean? Anybody can go to church. Anybody can say something. Anybody can hear something. But real believers, do, they do it. They follow through. They act as as your father's favorite song, Miss Marlene, was what? Trust and obey. You got you to gotta do something. You got to put some action to what you're saying. Specifically in chapter 1, he talked about how you have to control your tongue. Hello, we need some help with that. All of us, right? Got to control our tongue if we want to be real followers of Jesus. And we got to help those in need. And there are some very real things that hopefully we're all doing. So James chapter 1, he really lays this out. And then he begins in chapter 2 to talk about some specific issues. And so we're going to look at the specific issue today that emerges in James chapter 2. I want you to listen with me as I read how he starts chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, My friends, so he loves them, he's connected to them, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you must never treat people in different ways according to their outward experience, to their outward appearance. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is the Bible makes it very clear, and I want to make it very clear, that when you, of your free will, choose to accept God's sovereign grace in your life and become a believer in Jesus, there are things that you don't do. And there are things that you should do. This is, this is like the, this is it's like gravity. It's kind of the way it works. So like you don't just say, um, dear Lord Jesus, please forgive my sins. Amen. And then you just go do whatever you want to do. Like that, that, that's, that's not how it works. I mean, you can do it and many people do it, but that's not like a real conversion. You don't just live however you want to and say, hey, I want to get baptized so I'm good to go. Put a check on me, whether that's as an infant, whether that's later on in life. No, you, 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 there's things like that you agree that you shouldn't do and that there's things that you need to do. Now, we're, none of us are perfect and we'll talk about that, but that's the baseline, okay? And so whenever people offer you up some sort of Christianity or some sort of practice that just says you can do whatever you want and God's going to forgive you and everything's good, look, I wouldn't buy into that because it's not what the Bible teaches, all right? Look, he says right here, if you want believers in Jesus, there are some things that you must not do, and this is just one of them, okay? And look what he says. You should never treat people in different ways according to their outward appearance. 
Have any of us ever done that? Absolutely. Now, we sh should we do that as Christians? No, but sometimes we do. But that doesn't mean, look, this is the reality of life, okay? We, we become followers of Jesus, and we're supposed to now try to live like Jesus did, think like Jesus did, and act like Jesus does, but we don't always hit the mark, so we got to try, and we work hard to do that. And we're going to look at what happens there. But number one, we're going to look at seven truths from this passage today. And, and I'm not saying that there aren't others, but these seven are definitely here. And the first one that I want us to look at is that God's people should treat others right. Like, this, this is so simple. Like, as a believer in Jesus, you should treat people right. Like, if, if, you, if, if everyone looks at you and they say, well, he doesn't treat people right or she never treats people right, you got to pause. Something's wrong. Like, you're off, off track. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It just means that you're off in that. And you need to say, wait a minute. I need to start treating people rightly, not basing everything on what they look like. Now, in this world that we live, we see forms of prejudice all around us, which is basically what? We're prejudging people based on what they look like. And look, there's prejudice that comes in all forms. It's just the, it's part of how we assess things. Look, all of nature is assessing things. You know, when, if you watch the Nature Channel, okay, the lion who's in the grass, she's looking at the herd. What is she looking for? She's absolutely looking for the weakest one so that she can find the weakest one because that's going to be the best one for the meal, right? Assessing all of the variables. Well, humans do the same thing. When we see someone, when we hear something, when we smell something, we're assessing all of the variables. All right, look, this is just life, okay? I mean, don't, we can't really escape that. Assessment is just part of being alive, all right? People who assess better or correctly are oftentimes more successful and they're, they, they've advanced because they have good perception. However, there is within nature... But nature's broken, right? Whenever we come to know Christ, we're supposed to surrender to a new nature. You see, if you're just of the world, you absolutely are prejudging people. You're prejudging people by the way they look, by what they have, what they do. How does it affect me? Because ultimately what? In nature, it's about me. It's about how do I survive? How do I get the most for me? But here's the deal. When you become a Christian... You're no longer supposed to live in that way. Now you're supposed to do what? Live your life where there's a different agenda. If the agenda is, okay, what is God's agenda for my life? And if I'm going to surrender to that, I should not treat people based on how they look and how it benefits me. All right? This is very simple. Unfortunately, it's hard to put into practice. And he gives us an example of that to show you how hard it is. Look what he says right here in verses 2 through 4. Because that's generic. And we all are like, yeah, yeah, that's no good. But look what he says. He says, suppose a rich man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes to your meeting. All right? Somebody who's wealthy, important, comes in the back door back there. I mean, they got a fine suit on. They got gold rings on. I mean, you can tell they, they're refined. They're successful. Let's say they come in. And then a poor man, looks like he just came off the street, comes in right after him, all right? What does he say right here? If you show more respect to the well-dressed man and say to him, hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you today. I got a nice seat right over here for you. You want some coffee? 
hey, we got donuts in the back. Everything's good to go. But if we say to the poor man dressed in rags, oh, my God, what's he doing here? I can't, you know, hey, look, here, go sit down over there in the corner or whatever. Deal with that. What does it say there? Then we're guilty of creating distinction among ourselves and making judgments based on evil motives. Now, this isn't the only way this happens, but this does happen. I mean, let's be honest. When we see people and we make assessments which are natural, that's just the natural order of things. I mean, you see someone who's in a very nice suit, it's not wrong to say, okay, this guy's got, I mean, he's certainly well-dressed. He's certainly this. Maybe he's driving a nice car. I mean, these are all just, just assessments of reality. But whenever you then translate, well, he's important to me, he's important to our church because maybe he could be a better giver, he could do more for us, more important than someone who doesn't have that to offer. See, there is our evil motivation. It's not, it's not that it's wrong to have money or to have things or to even notice that someone has something or that others don't, because very often the decisions that that individual has made have brought them to that place. Sometimes decisions of other people, that's, the passage isn't even about that. The passage is about what do you do when you see that? How do you make judgments of their value or what they can do for you or for whoever or what they can't do based on what they look like? It's all about what our motivation is. And I think if we're honest, we tend to assess what people look like, what color their skin is, how much money they have, where they're from, are they educated, do they talk like I do. And then, so these are all just natural things. But then where we go astray is what? We assign value to those things based on who they are and what they can do for us and what they have to offer, what our shared goals may be. And look, it's, the shared goals may be good. I mean, coming to church, serving God, those are good things, but guess what? You can interject wrong motivation in there if it's about something other than valuing them. So it's all about what are my motivations when I look at and I see the outward appearance of others. And this, he just uses one example here because that's probably something they were struggling with is, the, is money. But there's all sorts of other ways in which prejudices are a problem. But it ultimately is about our motivation. Now, some people, when they say their motives, they, motive is just what's in your heart, what's behind it, okay? And it's very easy for all of us to say, well, I don't, I'm not really doing that. That's just, it's just the way it is. I'm, I'm, I'm a, my conscience is clear, if you will, or I'm not, I don't have any evil intention. But we have to be careful and think about some of these verses that I'm going to let you read right here when we're considering what our motivation is. I mean, when we truly look at other people, when we truly see them, what are our motivations about how we judge them? Look what it says right here in Proverbs 16, 2, and basically the same thing in 21, 2. It says, all the ways of a man or of a woman are pure in his own eyes. Meaning what? We tend to think we're right. And so when we see something, we think that, hey, our motives are good. But what? The Lord is the one who weighs the spirit. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, we have to be careful because the tendency is for all of us to think that our assessment of others is right. Because... I mean, we have to, to a certain degree, think that what we think is right is just how we operate. 
The problem is sometimes we're not thinking always the right way. Our motivation may not necessarily be right. And oftentimes, look at what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, my conscience is clear, which basically means I don't think I'm wrong. All right? But that doesn't prove I'm right. Now, I want you to really get your mind wrapped around this because just because you think you're right doesn't mean you're right. Just because you don't feel bad about what you think or what you do doesn't mean you're right. See, you can grow to a place where you can think wrongly, and at first, as a Christian, you might feel bad about it. But guess what? If you continue to think the wrong things and do the wrong things over and over and over again, you will come to a place where you won't necessarily feel that bad about it as much anymore. That's the same thing. First time you ever told a lie, you were worried about it. Tell another lie and another lie and another lie and another lie, and guess what? You'll get to the point where you won't feel bad about lying. Engage in the wrong type of relationship, same thing. And because what? Your conscience is not God. See, some people confuse their conscience with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works within your conscience, but that's not the Holy Spirit. You can have a conscience that's broken and out of whack. I mean, the best example would be a psychopath. They don't even think they're doing wrong. Their, their whole mindset is broken. Now, obviously, that's not what we're talking about as far as us today. But the, I think it's in Timothy. He says some people's conscience gets seared like a hot iron so that it becomes where they don't think of something is wrong. So the point to all of this is just because you think you're right, just because you don't feel bad about something, that doesn't in and of itself make it right. All right, okay? What do you have to do? You have to have some sort of standard by which you measure what is right. And this is why it's important to what? To study and to learn. And ultimately, what does it say? Who is the ultimate judge of what is right? Truth number two, God. He is the judge of what is right. And listen, don't worry. For good or for bad, you will get your day to stand before him. And at that point, you won't have to worry about what everybody else thought about it, what everybody else said about it, what a preacher said about it. Guess what? You will get to answer for all of your hidden motivations, all of the things that you think, all the things that you do and didn't do. And look, I don't know about you. That, that's intense to me because I know me and I can fool you and I can fool others. But guess what? You're going to get laid bare and you got to an answer. And at, at that point, you, you, you can have all the excuses that you want in the world and you can have all the reasons and all that. But guess what? He's going to really be able to cut through all of that and you're going to see the reality because he is the ultimate judge of what is right. Now, number three is also included in that. God's word is how we can know what is right. We can't trust how we feel. Listen, if you think wrong long enough, you're going to feel wrong about, feel right about things that are wrong. If you continue down paths, you're going to run into people who are going to lead you astray. You can't trust what everybody says. Look, some people have wrong motivations. Some people are incorrect, just like you have wrong motivations. Sometimes you're incorrect. So what do you have to do? You've got to trust something that's a, a standard by which you can measure 
what's truly right, and that is God's Word. That's how we know what is right. So if we're trying to live as true believers, we don't just do what we feel. Now, hopefully, what we feel is becoming more and more right. If we're thinking better, we're listening to the right kind of voices, we're learning God's Word, we're doing the right kinds of things, well, guess what? Now, hopefully, these things are going to come into alignment with what's true. But we've all seen how that's not just a concrete thing. I mean, there's many good people who do bad things. People who started out with the right motivations who end up doing some of the wrong things. This is the part of the human experience. I think I heard a song one time just talking about how things are beautifully broken. I mean, it's sometimes they just they do bad things. This is the reality. But what do you do? To make them right, you ask God to forgive you, and you try to realign what you're doing with what is right. The worst thing we can do is to try to justify it and continue down that path. That's a broken path. This only leads to a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. But in this particular way, these people, they were looking at those who came in who were rich and who had something, and they were making them more important than the poor folks who came in who didn't have all that. And the Bible the writer of this particular book wants them to know that's not right. And look what he says right here. He kind of goes off on a little tangent to explain to them a few things. He says, listen, my dear friends, God chose the poor people of this world to be rich in faith and to possess the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you dishonor the poor. Who are the ones who oppress you and drag you before the judges? The rich. They are the ones who speak evil of, of that good name which has been given to you. You know, in their particular context, a lot of the rich people, like in any society, had power. And they were taking advantage of their power and they were using it against other people. And look, that's just the way human nature works. People exert their influence. If their influence is money and power, guess what? That's what they use. Look, don't, don't, I mean, don't sit back and cry and scream. That's just the way it works. I mean, look, you've heard it's who you know. It's who you know. Like, this is the way the world works. I mean, it's just part of the deal. So what do you got to do? You got to try to figure out how do I live as a believer in Jesus in the midst of this world that is continuing to process and go. We got to do what? We can't base everything on what people have. Now, this is especially hard, appropriate to the United States of America. I mean, we're the wealthiest country that's ever existed. I mean, look. When you hear the stories of these folks who are in other places, I remember when we had the, the Nigerian missionary, Todd, back there, and he was showing pictures of the video of their church. And I mean, it, it basically was a bunch of old tin that you, many of us would have in an old shed somewhere, and it was all put up together and, um, you know, nailed together with old broken, rusty nails, a dirt floor, and they had a little... Uh, I mean, a little sound thing that looked like maybe one of the three generations ago that we have in the office. And this guy was proud. I mean, he had real pride in a positive way in his heart for what God had done for them to have that. And all I could, I really, I'm not going to lie, the only thing I could think about was, man, I, I, we got to check ourselves. Because don't think Jesus was playing when he said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He wasn't just joking. Because riches make us what? They make us dependent on ourselves because they want what? We want more of them. 
because we want more. We want to have more. We want to have more comfort. We want to have more convenience. We want to have more things. And look, oftentimes those things lead us to have more power, to have more influence, more have security, more freedom. And guess what? All of those things pull us. They're not bad in and of themselves, but they pull us away from placing our trust and faith and security in who? In Him. So we got to be careful because we live in a world that absolutely measures people by what? The size of that bank account. I, I have on my phone, I don't even know how I got on this, but I, you know, I listen to podcasts and some of these business leaders. And look, I was just, just as a mental exercise when I was in the airport for a few hours thinking about this. I mean, I went through and it was like over a dozen successful people who were just talking about, all they were talking about was it's all about how big your bank account is and all these other things. And I thought, man, i got to be careful because these kinds of people and these kinds of things will pollute the way you think. And they'll get you to thinking just like these folks did back then. And they were struggling with. It's, hey, it's not about what you have. It's not about how big your bank account is. It's not about all of that. You should treat people the way God wants them to be treated. And that leads us to truth number four, that God doesn't judge things the same way the world does. You see, we've said this before, and it's absolutely true. I mean, God chooses some of the weaker things of this world to demonstrate His glory and His grace. I mean, Jesus comes to the earth not as a king, not as this very important person, but what? It's like really a third world, basically a peasant, carpenter's son. And he is the most important. God sees things differently than we do. I'm reminded of the story of David. You remember when David was chosen as king in the Old Testament? Some of you remember that story from the Old Testament? And Samuel was excited that God was going to choose a king, even though that's not really what he, the God wanted him to have. But so he went and <clears throat> David's father had all these sons and they went through and he went and he met all the sons and they were all big, they were all strong, they were all good-looking guys and they were conscripted in the army. And I mean, they were the picture of what you think you ought to have when you look at the next king or the next leader. And then it wasn't them. And then Samuel asked, he said, uh, he said well, Jesse, he said, you... Man, I knew God told me to go get one of your sons, but you have any other sons? He said, oh, well, yeah, I got the little run of the litter. He's out there in the fields. And then what ends up happening? God chooses David, and this is what the Lord said to Samuel in chapter 16, verse 7. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And this is talking about what? One of the sons that everybody knew was the right one. I mean, you know, he's the big one. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but what? The Lord looks on the heart. You see, God doesn't judge things the same way the world does. Now, we're in the world, and we have to, to, to operate in this world, and we're trying to figure it out. But remember that whole deal. Like, when you surrender your life to Christ, you're saying that, hey, I'm not going to do this life exactly the way the world does. I'm going to now do it in a way that God wants me to do it. And see, that's just very hard because you, you don't want, always want that. Look, Jesus didn't always want it on every level. He followed through. I mean, remember when he was in the garden? How did he pray? 
He said, he said if there's, God, if there's really any other way to do this, man, look, could, could this pass from, from no, I don't want to go this route. But what? Not my will, but your will. See, that's what being a real Christian is, is that when you come to that place where you've got to surrender between what your will is and what his will is. And unfortunately, oftentimes we do what? We fail. So we revert this path. And then we got to ask for forgiveness and we got to suffer some pain. We got to move through all of that to get right back to the same place. And then what do we do again? We got to surrender to his will. And in this particular area of life, when we see people, look, you may be so ingrained in your thinking that when you see a certain kind of person, who has money or doesn't have this, that you want in your old way of thinking to judge them in some way. Guess what? you got to surrender that to the obedience of Christ. And it may take you a while, but start, start trying to do the right thing, not prejudging them. Maybe it's not just their money. Maybe it's the way they dress. Maybe it's the way they act. Maybe it's the way they look. Fill in the blank for yourself, but you'll know. I mean, when you pray to God and say, God, how am I judging people incorrectly. He'll show you. I promise you, he'll show you. But the goal as a Christian is to do what? To try to start looking at things the way that God does. Now, if we look at James chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, we're going to get right through this to number 5. He says, look, you will be doing the right thing if you obey the law of the kingdom, which is found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Most important commandment, love God and what? Love your neighbor. But if you treat people according to their outward appearance, which is what our tendency is, you are guilty of sin. And the law condemns you as a lawbreaker. Whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. For the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Even if you do not commit adultery, you have become a lawbreaker, even... I mean, if you commit murder. Now, what's all this about? He's, he's not necessarily equating all the two, but what's he saying? He wants you to know that everyone is a lawbreaker. You see, if you're honest, you realize that, wait, I'm, I'm a sinner. And I, man, I don't know if I want or I'm really looking forward to the day when I have to stand before God and all of my sins are laid bare. Because, see, we, we, we kind of create boxes where we don't want to think about all that. And we hide that from other people. We hide it from ourselves. And so the reality is every one of us is a lawbreaker. I mean, we have the wrong motives. Well, look, we, can't, we don't even have the right motives when we want to sometimes. We treat other people badly. We think badly. We have the wrong kind of thoughts. We don't do what we should. And so every single one of us is a lawbreaker which is number five, every one of us has broken God's laws. See, if you're here today, let's say you're watching this and you can't grasp that you have broken God's laws, my prayer is with you, friend, because that means you're not focused on you. You're looking at how you are compared to others, and I promise you there's plenty of people in this room, in this world that you're looking at today that you may be better than. But the problem is... You got, that ain't, I ain't your target. They're not your target. They may do some bad things. The target is what? It's God and perfection, and you have not met that. You're a lawbreaker. Liar, cheater, stealer, 
all these go down the long list of the Ten Commandments, and there's one of them, every single one of us have broken. And this does not sound like good news. Like, I don't think positively when I think, wow, I'm fixing to have to stand before God for all of the things I've said, the things I've done, the things I didn't do. I mean, this is not, I'm not, I'm not, feeling, I'm not feeling warm, fuzzy feelings about that. I'm just being honest. That's why we have to have some more information. There's got to be some better news because that's not good news. Because I know when all the excuses are gone that, that I, I, I don't want to be in that position. I mean, that's going to be uh, the way to that judgment is going to be difficult. And so that's why he goes on to talk about something that's critical to the process of those who are believers. He says, speak in verse 12 and 13 and act as what? People who will be judged by the law that sets us free. For God will not show mercy when he judges the person who has not been merciful. But listen to this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Look, if you're a Christian, that ought to be something that you say, thank God. Thank God that mercy is available instead of judgment. Because, see, the reality is if you're a lawbreaker, and you are, if I'm a lawbreaker, I've been a sinner, I've been a liar, I've been a cheater, I've been all these different things on some level my entire life. The Bible says even steeped in birth, okay? So I'm, I'm a lawbreaker, and I deserve everything I get. See, I don't live under the illusion, and neither should you, that you're a really good person. You may be a better person, and hopefully the longer you live, you're becoming better, but really... In your heart of hearts, there's lots of things you're not proud of, just like me. And so what do you need? You need a way to overcome that. And the overcomer is Jesus and the mercy he offers. That's why Jesus died on the cross. I mean, can you imagine what kind of price it would take to pay for the collective sins of humanity? Listen, humans have done some terrible things. I mean, brutal Terrible things. Some of them have done them in the name of religion to this day. I mean, you got people killing other people, raping them, torturing them, doing bad things. I mean, these are terrible acts of lawlessness and senselessness that are just unleashed on the world because of brokenness. You want to know why it took something as powerful as the blood of the perfect Son of God? Because sin is real and it's terrible. But guess what? There's a sacrifice for it, and that's what Jesus did. And it was a terrible high price. I mean, anybody, Christian or not, who hears the story of Jesus looks at that and like, man, that is terribly unjust. That's not right. I mean, you got a guy who didn't do anything but help people. I mean, all he did was heal people. He wasn't about the money. He wasn't about the power. He wasn't about the fame. And what did they do to him because of all that he did that was good? They nailed him to a cross, tortured him, put a crown of thorns on his head, plucked out his beard, spit in his face. Terribly high price. But guess what? That was the price. His, the Bible says, injustice is what paid to prevent you and to prevent me from getting justice. You see, in this life, we tend to want to give everybody else justice but we want mercy. And that leads us to number seven, is that followers of Jesus are supposed to offer mercy to other people. Friends, I've said this before, and this is, this is so critical. 
if you're a believer in Jesus and you have accepted the mercy offered to you through Jesus' sacrificial death on that cross and you say, God, I need you to forgive me of my sins. I don't want to stand, I don't want to stand in judgment for all my bad thoughts, for all my bad ways, all the times I didn't do what I should. I need your mercy. I need Jesus to be my advocate. And so you make that confession and you get baptized and, man, you get right with God. If you do that and then you don't have it somewhere within you to offer mercy to others, something's wrong. You missed something. I don't know what's, I don't know what's broken. I could start with a few things, but I'm going to tell you right now, you as a person who has received tremendous mercy from God are called to offer mercy to others. Look, if your default mode is to judge others for what they're doing instead of offering a mercy, I, I hope you pray to God for him to show you what's going on because something ain't right. Because you can't be a recipient of that and then only want to give judgment. Followers of Jesus are supposed to offer mercy to others. How do we do that? In your life, okay, how do you offer mercy to others? At school, teenagers, when you see people who are frustrating you, doing things that you don't want them to do, maybe they're not acting the way you want them to act, do you go in a merciful approach to help them? To work towards their redemption, maybe towards a good end? Or do you automatically judge who they are by what they're doing, what they look like, and all that? And look, this is something that the church has struggled with from the beginning. It wouldn't have been written to them if it wasn't. They struggled with it. I mean, this is the nature of our struggle. But what we have is the hope that through Jesus Christ we can be better. And that's my hope. My hope is that as I think about my response to the truth from God's word, is that I would say, okay, God, how am I prejudging? How am I being prejudiced against others based on what they look like? And first off, forgive me, God, for how I've done it. That's the starting point for every one of us. If you're a true believer, you got to say, God, when, in just a little minute, I want you to bow your head and say, God, I want you to forgive me for I, how I have prejudged and had prejudice in my heart against other people. Now, if you don't think you've prejudged or have any prejudice in your heart, you might want to spend a little more time in prayer, okay? But I'll leave that to you. But, but start by saying, God, forgive me. If you don't know what it is, ask him to show you. He will. And then start working towards, hey, how do I fix this broken way of thinking in my mind? How do I fix my actions? Look, don't overthink it. Just work towards it. Now, if you're watching this today and you've never accepted the mercy offered through Jesus, man, the first prayer I want you to pray today is, God, show me how to connect to you so I don't have to stand in judgment one day. If you need me to talk with you about that, I'd love to talk with you about it. I know there's some folks that, that are we're working through baptism and we're talking about that, and that's a fantastic thing, and I want to make sure that you know that I'm available if that's something that you need to talk about at any point. So as I lead us in this prayer, before I do, I want you, right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Even if you're watching this on a computer screen, I want you to bow your head. And I want you to ask God to forgive you as a Christian for how you may have prejudged people based on their outer appearance. 
I want you to ask him to help you to do better. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for all that you do for us. I pray you would help us not to fall victim like some of our previous brothers and sisters did to constantly judging others by the way they look. Help us to see them as your creation regardless of what they have, regardless of their past makes mistakes and decisions. Help us to have the right motivation, a motivation of love and mercy because of the love and mercy that you have shown us. As we think about a celebration of that mercy through communion today, may we be reminded to offer mercy at every opportunity. We ask this in Christ's name.